Everyone wants the food they eat to be safe. Conscientious consumers will try to avoid additives and pesticides, and certainly no one would willingly ingest organisms known to be responsible for foodborne diseases. However, parts of the American food supply are infused with pathogenic microbes, and many people expect to suffer minor bouts of food poisoning from time to time. Unfortunately, sometimes foodborne diseases can have much more serious consequences, and preventative measures to protect the safety of the food supply are more urgently needed than ever. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM Channel 233. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from New York City is my guest, Dr. Marion Nessel. Dr. Nessel is Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. Her degrees include a Ph.D. in molecular biology and an MPH in public health nutrition, both from the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Nessel is widely published in professional journals and in the popular press. She has written the award-winning books Food Politics and Safe Food. Her most recent book is What to Eat. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Nessel. Oh, my pleasure. Dr. Nessel, let's talk about foodborne illness. What organisms pose the greatest threat today, and what happens if you ingest them? Well, the big ones are ones that never used to be a problem 20 or 30 years ago, and these include particularly toxic kinds of salmonella and E. coli, um, as well as listeria. I mean, these are kind of new as major threats in the food supply, and they're the ones that get the headlines. Before we go into discussing those specifically, um, in the introduction of your book, Safe Food, you make an interesting point about science-based versus value-based approaches to evaluating the safety of food. Can you elaborate on the two methods? Oh, certainly. Scientists, when they look at whether a food is safe or not, do it in a very scientific way. They count the number of cases of illness, the number of hospitalizations, and the number of deaths. And they say, for example, that foodborne illnesses cause 76 million cases of illness, 325,000 hospitalizations, and 5,000 deaths a year. Those are figures from the Centers for Disease Control, and they're very, very widely cited. Um, And so they would say that given those kinds of numbers, the public ought to be terrified about food safety and doing everything that it can to prevent uh, foodborne illness from getting around. That's a sort of science-based approach. Um, on, on the same time, they look at something like the mad cow disease that affected about 150 people in Europe, and there have been no cases at all in the United States. And yet people in the United States are terrified about the possibility of getting mad cow disease and also extremely worried about genetically modified and irradiated foods, although there have been no cases of illness associated with any of those that anybody can document. And so the scientists look at fears about those kinds of issues and say, those are non-scientific and and nobody should really be worried about them. Whereas if you talk to people about why they're concerned about these issues, they don't really have anything to do with safety on its own. They have a great deal to do with control of the food supply, who decides what's in the food supply, who makes the decisions about what people eat. And the most highly feared problems in the food supply tend to be ones that not so much is known about and that people can't identify on their own. 
There's something very familiar about foods that make you sick, but there's something very unfamiliar about genetically modified foods, for example, and that troubles people. And I think those, that troubling is legitimate, even though it can't be quantified in scientific terms. Right. What are dread and outrage factors? I think you're talking about this. Well, dread and outrage factors would be the idea that one company controls what's in the food supply or the idea that cows were fed parts of animals that caused them to get mad cow disease. Those induce dread and outrage, even though they don't make very many people sick. You caution that um, even science-based approaches require interpretation. Nothing is completely objective. Well, it's very hard to count cases of foodborne illness, for example. And the spinach outbreak in California was a very good example of that. First of all, somebody gets sick and goes to a doctor. The doctor tries to figure out what's wrong, does some testing, comes back with a diagnosis of E. coli 015787. That's a reportable disease, reports it. It takes a while to do that. Um, By the time any agency hears about a number of cases, weeks have gone by. And in fact, by the time the Food and Drug Administration issued the recall, on spinach, 85% of the cases had already occurred. So you can pretty much assume that there's always underreporting. There's underreporting because lots of people don't go to doctors. Lots of doctors don't report. Um, if they do report, the cases may not get to the right place. I mean, there's not a very, very good system for counting cases of foodborne illness. Uh, I mean, they do the best they can with it, and it's gotten better in recent years. But there's going to be, there will always be the idea that a lot of it is underreported. The other thing is that you don't know what makes you sick. You eat something, and then the next day you don't feel well. It could be for any number of reasons. And very, very difficult to trace back to what the particular problem is in the food supply. You have said that the recent outbreak of E. coli in California-grown spinach was entirely predictable. How could it have been predicted? Well, we don't have a farm-to-table safety system in this country. There's no required food. There are no required food safety regulations on farms unless they're organic. Um, and so that you're trusting that whatever procedures farmers are using are going to produce safe food and that whatever procedures the packers are using will produce safe food. I mean, nobody wants to produce foods that make people sick. But there's no, there are no requirements and attempts to have. We have required food safety procedures for meat and poultry, starting at the packing house, for juices, for sprouts, and for eggs. And that's it. The rest of it is all voluntary. It's good manufacturing practices or good agricultural practices, and they're voluntary. So there are food production practices... There are dietary preferences and certain demographics that all come into play when looking at how foodborne illnesses might emerge and spread. Let's start with food production practices. You've, you've mentioned a little bit about that. How do they increase our risk? Well, it depends on what they are. If you look at the spinach episode, for example, which, by the way, is still, it's still not clear how this happened. But the investigation showed that there were cattle grazing on fields about a mile away from the field where the spinach was being grown and that there were wild animals trooping through that area, whether the wild animals carried the E. coli into the field or whether the water system did is absolutely unclear. Nobody really knows. Um, But unless the production practices keep the water supply separate and clean, 
keep the fields fenced so that wild animals aren't going to get in there, uh, and make sure that everything is washed appropriately, that the whatever fertilizer is being used has been treated in the appropriate ways. Um, right now, there are no regulations that require any of that. Well, what about regulations with regard to um, low-dose antibiotic drugs used to promote growth? Well, they're used less and less these days. They're not used in chickens at all, um, and they are used in cattle uh, to some extent. And there's a lot of concern about the use of antibiotics in raising animals because there's quite a bit of evidence now that shows that that increases the prevalence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the intestines of the animals and in the intestines of farm workers and farm workers' families who deal with uh, those animals, um, whether there have been cases of people becoming ill because those antibiotics don't work on them, you know, is not absolutely clear, but everybody thinks that the more antibiotics that are used in raising animals for reasons that don't seem absolutely necessary, the more possibility is that those antibiotics won't work for us. So that's a huge problem. Is there a proven way to ensure food safety? Well, I don't know what you mean by proven. Um, you know, food is never going to be 100% safe. And so the question is, how much of a risk are you willing to take? If you want safe food, you've got to cook everything that you're eating. Actually, that would work really well. Um, you know, if, if the spinach were cooked, it wouldn't have been a problem. It wasn't a problem in the, spin, in the frozen spinach because that was blanched. Right. And whatever bacteria were on there were killed. But we have our food preferences, ways we enjoy yeah, eating Yeah, but we food. like raw. We like raw fruits and vegetables, um, and we should be able to eat them. So I don't think it can ever be 100% safe, but it certainly could be a lot safer than it is now. And I think it would be a lot safer if we had institutional food safety regulations in place from farm to table. And so that everybody involved in producing food was not only producing food under standard procedures that ensured food safety, but also was being inspected to encourage them to follow those rules. Hmm. Are you referring to hazard analysis and I critical am. control? I, am. I never like to say it you because don't. it's such a mouthful, hazard. <laughs> uh, hazard analysis and critical control point. These are procedures that were worked out for NASA so that astronauts wouldn't get sick in outer space, something that would be extremely inconvenient under conditions of zero gravity. Just think about it for a minute. It's sure. pretty scary. And they work in outer space. They ought to work on Earth. And they do work on Earth. Uh, contamination in the meat industry has gone down quite a bit since HACCP rules were required in the mid-90s. So people are coming around to using the system. Well, they have to. The meat industry has to. It's required. But it's only required from the packing house on. Now, the packing house people say, uh, you know, it's not our fault. These animals are coming to us dirty and contaminated. And what you really want is you really want HACCP rules on the farm. So the animals that come to the packing house aren't sick to begin with or aren't carrying these bacteria to begin with. So it's better legislation, cook your food, uh, anything else that can help individuals feel more safe eating out or preparing our food at home? Well, they need, to, they need to hope that the person who is cooking their food is following rules to the extent possible. If the, if the foods are hot, I don't think they need to worry it's just in the raw and uncooked foods. I don't personally buy foods and buy salads in bags, but that's because I live in Manhattan and they're just simply not fresh. Mm -hmm. By the time I get to them, I, I, I would buy bagged salads in California. And so I think they're just, you know, you need to follow basic food safety rules. Keep cold foods cold and hot foods hot. Um, 
you want to separate utensils that you're using for meat from utensils that are, you're using for vegetables. You want to wash your hands frequently. You know, sort of standard rules. Right. But sometimes when people get ill after eating at a restaurant, they've eaten food that was cooked. Uh, yes, but you don't know what it was that made them sick. They may have put sauce on it mm. that wasn't cooked. If the food was cooked and it's hot, it's very unlikely that that's the cause of the problem. Often it's the salsa or some sauce on the table or some other kind of thing that hasn't been cooked recently. Good to know. <laughs> Most bacteria can't survive high heat. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for today's medical professional. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Marion Nessel, nutrition, food studies, and public health professor at New York University and widely published author on nutrition. Thank you so much, Dr. Nessel. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.